محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه أما بعد We continue from where we had left off talking about the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ and we are still talking about the situation of Arabia before the coming of the Prophet ﷺ. And in today's lecture, inshaAllah ta'ala, we're going to shed some light upon the religious status of the Arabs, the religious status of the Arabs before the advent of the Prophet ﷺ and in fact the religious status of the world. And the reason why we need to illustrate this, the reason why we need to talk about what people believed before the coming of the Prophet is to appreciate the blessings that the Prophet came with. When we understand pre-Islam, we will appreciate Islam. Just like we understand opposites. When we understand black, we understand white. When we understand night, we understand day. We always look at opposites to appreciate each thing. We contrast. So when we understand jahiliyyah, when we understand the idolatry, paganism, that was prevalent in pre-Islam, we will appreciate the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave through our Prophet by sending our Prophet to the worlds. Now we know that every nation had prophets. Allah says in the Quran, Every ummah had a prophet. So the Arabs as well had a prophet. And their prophet was of course the prophet Ibrahim and his son Ismail. And that is why numerous times in the Quran, Allah mentions مِلَّةَ أَبِيكُمْ Ibrahim. This is the religion of your forefather Ibrahim. And the Prophet Ibrahim had sanctioned many practices which remained for thousands of years until the coming of the Prophet So of the practices that Ibrahim began was to consider Makkah sacred. What does it mean sacred? We call Makkah haram. From the same word as haram. It's the same word haram. Haram and haram. Haram is called haram because many things that are halal outside the haram are haram inside the haram. This is why we call it the haram. It's a sanctity. So for example, you're not allowed to hunt game in the haram. You see a wild deer, you cannot go hunt it. This is a haram. You're not allowed to pull a tree. You cannot pull a leaf from the haram. Everything that is natural, it's Allah's creation. You cannot touch it. Allah says in the Quran, وَمَن دَخَلَهُ كَانَ آمِنًا Whoever enters the haram is safe. And this is a ruling we still apply in our sharia, that if a criminal, if any evil person does a crime and he runs to the haram seeking refuge, then Allah says he is safe because this is a haram. And the Jahili Arabs upheld this. Ibn Abbas said, we would see, in the days of Jahiliyyah, we would see, a person would see the murder of his father doing tawaf. And he wouldn't touch a hair on his head. You can't do anything, this is the haram. Right? So Ibrahim sanctioned the haram, showing respect to the Kaaba. Ibrahim salam sanctioned them, instituting the sacred months. There are four sacred months in our Sharia. In these sacred months, all hostility has to cease. You're not allowed to engage in any warfare. Everybody must be at peace. And of course, this is a boost to economy. When you have warring tribes, then Allah says, no, in these four months, there must be peace. 
Doesn't matter what the excuses. So this boosts the economy. It brings about peace in society. Of the things that Ibrahim instituted, of course, was the Hajj. With all of its rites and rituals. Doing Tawaf, doing Sa'i, uh, between Safa and Marwa. Uh, uh, the, the, the aspect of sacrificing animals around the Haram. Uh, the aspect of decorating animals. This is a, a thing that a lot of people don't know. But even in our Sharia, when we assign an animal to, to sacrifice, people would take it from their village from their, uh, from their cities and travel to Mecca with it, those animals are decorated, they're garlanded, they're put, they're, the, the decorations are put on them, so everybody knows that these animals have been dedicated to the poor of the Haram. So where did this come from? From the Prophet Ibrahim salam. Quick footnote here, many non-Muslim researchers, they say these aspects of Islam are taken from pagan culture. Because the pagans venerated the Kaaba as the holy sanctuary. And the pagans had tawaf, and the pagans did this, and the pagans did that. Now, this is all perspective. Is the glass half empty, half full? It's all a matter of perspective. For the non-Muslims, they're not looking at the fact that this is coming from Ibrahim. And they think that these are pagan rituals, so the Prophet ﷺ, according to their perspective, adopted certain things from paganism, and then he added his own two cents. For us, we say no. He resurrected the original teachings of the Prophet Ibrahim and he cleansed away the paganism. So, if the Arabs had a Prophet, and if this Prophet is Ibrahim, and Ibrahim is teaching Tawheed, where did paganism come from? Simple question. Ibrahim is upon Tawheed, one God. He doesn't have idols. Ismail, one God. Where does paganism come from? Our Prophet ﷺ told us, so then we have a historical fact because our Prophet ﷺ said it. Our Prophet ﷺ told us when and where paganism began and how it began. Hadith is in Sahih Muslim. He said, I saw Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'i. He mentions one person. Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'i wandering around in the fire of hell with his entrails cut open behind him. I mean, it was a very severe punishment. I saw Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'i being punished in a humiliating manner. Why? The Prophet ﷺ said, he was the first to baddala deena Ismail. Notice he said deen Ismail. Ismail's religion. Ibrahim and Ismail, they had a deen. They had a religion that is Islam. The first person to change it was Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'i. And he was also the first person to introduce superstitions. Allah says in the Quran, مَا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ مِنْ بَحِيرَةٍ وَلَا سَائِبَلَةٍ وَلَا وَصِيلَةٍ وَلَا حَامٍ These are four types of animals, and I haven't even memorized them because they're so complicated. If the seventh female of a seventh female camel is born, these types of weird superstitions. In other words, if you have the, the second male from a third female, something like this weird permutation, that particular animal has to be killed for the gods. So you work out superstitions, you work out charms, you work out all of these paganistic stuff. He was the one who began this. And it is narrated that Amr ibn Luhay traveled to Syria. And the Syria, they had the Amaliq, the Amalekites, the Amaliq. And the uh, Amalekites are mentioned in the Old Testament. And they are an ancient civilization. And they are a... A civilization, the Old Testament calls them of giants, meaning they were tall people. And they had structures and they had a civilization. And when he visited the Amaliq, the Arabic is called Amaliq, in English or uh, in Western language is called the Amalekites. When he visited the Amaliq, he found them worshipping idols. And he found them to be this powerful civilization. So he said, what are these idols? 
So they said, these are our sources of power. When we're in drought, when we're in hunger, when the enemy attacks, we pray to these idols and miracles happen. So he said, can you gift me one of these idols? I'll bring it back home. I want to take it back. So they gave him an idol by the name of Hubal. And so Hubal became the first idol of the Arabian Peninsula and it also became the main idol of the Quraysh. And that is why hundreds of years later in the battle of Uhud, when Abu Sufyan thought that they had won, he screamed out, U'lu Hubal, Hubal has won. Because he's fighting against the Muslims. He mentions the idol that Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'i. Hubal has won. And so the Prophet said, respond back to him. Don't let this go by. Respond back to him. So Umar al-Khattab said, how do I respond back? So the Prophet said, that, say that Allah is our protector and you have no protector. Allahu mawlana wa la mawla lakum. Now the point being that Amr ibn Luhay brought back this Hubal. And he put it in front of the Kaaba, and this was the first time that paganism started. It is also said that Amr ibn Luhay changed the Talbiyah for Hajj. And some people say it was changed a few generations after him. So what was Talbiyah? What is Talbiyah? We all know Talbiyah, we should know Talbiyah. Labbaik Allahumma Labbaik. This is what we say when we go for Hajj. What does Labbaik mean? Labbaik means, I am responding, O oh Allah. I'm answering the call. Why? Because Allah, from the time of Ibrahim, Allah announced Hajj. وَأَذِّنْ فِي النَّاسِ بِالْحَجِّ There's an adhan for Hajj, calling people for Hajj. So there's an eternal call, come do Hajj. When we go do Hajj, we say, لَبَّيْكْ I'm responding to the call. I hear the call, لَبَّيْكْ So Ibrahim was the one who began, لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ لَبَّيْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ لَبَّيْكَ When this guy Amr ibn Ruhay came along, he changed it. He has to change it because part of the talbiyah says, لَبَّيْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ Well, he's changing the religion. There are sharik. Sharik means partner. There are sharik now. So he changed it, he modified it. What did he say? And this hadith is in Sahih Muslim that the, the Quraysh had a different talbiyah. What was their talbiyah? لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ لَبَّيْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ So far so good. And then they say, إِلَّا There's an إِلَّا, except. This doesn't make sense here. What do you mean except? How can you have an except? You have no partner except. Except what? إِلَّا شَرِيكًا هُوَ لَكَ تَمْلِكُهُ وَمَا مَلَكَ Except for a partner who belongs to you. And you control the partner and you control all that he controls. You have partners, but you're the big boss. That's according to them. Just like ancient Greek, ancient Rome, there's the big boss, Zupiters, or uh, Jupiter, Zeus, there's the big people. And then you have the minor gods. So the Quraysh invented this new-fangled interpretation. Now, Amr ibn Luhay, when did he live? I tried a lot to do research about, we can, can we find a date or not? And of course the reality is we're not going to find a date because the Arabs did not record things in dates. The Arabs were like the ancient Chinese, they recorded things in occasions. The year when the elephant attacked, Amal Fil, right? This is how they record things. They didn't have a calendar. They didn't import the Roman calendar, they didn't import the Persian calendar. Of course they didn't believe in the Jewish calendar until Umar ibn al-Khattab began the Islamic calendar. The Arabs did not have a calendar. When you don't have a calendar, how are you going to... Demarcate dates by big events. This was the year when we had that battle. 
So we remember that year. And then a few years later, something else happened. So they remember that year. In between, they can say two years after the big battle, three years before the incident of the elephant. This is how they would have dates. So obviously, when it comes to translating when Amr ibn Nuhay al-Khuza'i lived, it is impossible for us to fully comprehend. However, what I did was I went back to figure out which generation did he belong to. And he belonged to a generation which is basically around the generation of Fihr, who is the original founder of Quraysh. So, assuming that every generation is around 40 years, 45 years, rough guess, Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'i was in the first century of the Christian era. The first century of the Christian era. And our Prophet ﷺ was born in the sixth century of the Christian era. Right? 570 or so. This is roughly the date CE when he was born. We'll talk about that next week, inshallah, the day and the year he was born uh, and the Christian equivalent. Around 570, 571 CE of the Christian era, our Prophet ﷺ was born. So around 500 years before the coming of our Prophet ﷺ, Amr ibn Luhay introduces Hubal. So it takes five centuries of pure paganism to spread to all of Arabia. Now, question arises, how could one man single-handedly change the religion of Ibrahim and Ismail? This is a question that we should ask ourselves and benefit from in order not to fall into this trap. One man can change the religion of their forefather Ibrahim and Ismail. How so? Allahu A'lam, but I, I think that we can summarize it in two factors. First and foremost, the inferiority complex that Amr ibn Luhay had towards the advanced Amalkites, Amaliqa. Because the Amalkites were a powerful civilization. They were a civilization that had history, writing, architecture, large buildings. They were known to be undefeated. And that's what the Old Testament also mentions, that the Amalekites are the feared. This is the, 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 the nation that is indestructible. Everybody is scared of them. And they're described to be giants, meaning probably they're maybe six and a half, seven foot tall, the average person amongst them. They're a generation, there's a group of people whom the world looks up to. So Amr ibn Luhay felt a complex that these are the mighty nation. We should take from them in everything. So, because... The Syrian society, the Am Amalekites were so powerful, Amr ibn Luhay assumed they must be correct in everything. And it is very important that we take from this lesson things that we benefit from in our times. Simply because a nation is powerful doesn't mean it has the correct morality, the correct ethics, the correct theology. Simply because a nation has technology or civilization or architecture doesn't mean it is better in everything. Yes, it's better in some things, but not in everything. So here we have Amr ibn Hay was so astounded that these Amalekites can never be defeated. They have this and that. Surely they must be upon guidance. So he took from them their theology. Now suppose he did. Who is he to be accepted amongst his people? Here we get to the second factor. So the first factor was that the Amalekites were considered to be so powerful and mighty. There's an inferiority complex. The second factor... Amr ibn Luhay was not just a lay person. He was the chieftain of Khuza'a. Who is Khuza'a? You remember a few weeks ago, I mentioned very briefly the history of Mecca for 500 years. Very briefly, just a few paragraphs. And we mentioned that the descendants of Ismail were for a period of time kicked out of Mecca. Until Qusay came and reconquered Mecca. 
Right? So, for this period of time, who was in charge? Khuza'ah. So, in a way, there's a matter of Izzah here. The Quraysh did not introduce idolatry. Khuza'ah did. However, we say Quraysh followed them. So, there's a negative there. But Quraysh did not introduce idolatry. Khuza'ah did. Khuza'ah is another tribe, not Quraysh. So, Khuza'ah was in charge of Mecca, not the Quraysh. And Abr ibn al-Hay was their chieftain. And this chieftain was considered to be one of the most respected chieftains of Arabia. And it is said that he had a lot of power, that he won a number of victories, that he defended Mecca against foreign invasions, that he was a generous man, so his people loved him. So when his people loved him, and he imported a theology, then the people followed. And we can add a third reason here, and that is that there must have been at least 2,000 years since the time of Ibrahim to Amr ibn Luhay. We talked about this in the second or third lesson. How many years between Ibrahim and our time? At least 2,000 years must have gone by. Between Ibrahim and Ismail and Amr ibn Luhay. So we have now, therefore, a long time where there's no guidance, there's no prophets, where the message of the prophets has become diluted, where ignorance prevails. And these are the three factors then. Number one, inferiority complex. You think that a civilization is better, everything must be right about them. Number two, the person who says it has credentials. He's prestigious. And number three, ignorance. Now, wallahi, these three factors, we need to understand them right now as we speak in 2011. Because, wallahi, our religion is being bombarded by a lot of people. And we have the exact same three factors. People are saying very strange things. People are wanting us to accept complete variations of our religion. Why? Wallahi, the exact same three things. Number one is inferiority complex towards another civilization, which might indeed be the most powerful technologically, militarily, might have the most civilization in some aspects. But that doesn't mean that morally, theologically, ethically, they are the leaders of the world. We have izzah through our Quran and Sunnah, and we have the truth. And simply because a nation is more powerful than us militarily, it doesn't mean that they are more closer to the truth than us. Number two, we have People with lots of credentials, people who are being promoted by others as being the reformers and whatnot, that these are the people we need to listen to. These are the Martin Luthers of Islam that we're being told, right? And they have, mashallah, PhDs and whatnot from the fanciest universities. And they have the gift of the tongue and they have publications and they are famous and they're very intelligent, just like Amr ibn Luhay was accepted. And number three, ignorance. The average Muslim does not know his religion inside out. And then when somebody comes and speaks in generic slogans, then it's very easy to be mesmerized. It's very easy to fall prey. And wallah, it might not be maybe as bad as shirk, but still, we're facing an onslaught of changing of the faith. And alhamdulillah, uh, alhamdulillah, there are people that are talking about this and against this and uh, correcting these misconceptions. But I think it's very pertinent to discuss these three factors of Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuzai. So, Amr ibn Luhay, as we said, lived around four or five hundred years before the coming of the Prophet There are even narrations, and Allah knows best, these are simply found in the books of history. We're never going to know if they're sure or not. That shaitan inspired him through a dream, because shaitan also inspires, by the way. Shaitan also sends wahi. Shaitan gives wahi. And Allah Azza wa Jal also gives wahi. But the wahi of shaitan comes from him. And it is evil. And Allah's wahi is pure and comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says in the Quran, وَإِنَّ الشَّيَاطِينَ لَيُوحُونَ إِلَىٰ أَوْلِيَائِهِمْ لِيُجَادِلُوكُمْ 
That shayateen inspire their people so that they can come and argue and debate with you. So shaitan himself gives wahi. So there are some books of history that mention that shaitan inspired, i.e. through a dream, through whispering, uh, to Amr ibn Luhay, the names of the original idols that first began idolatry on this earth. And these are names mentioned in the Quran. How did idolatry begin? Allah mentions in the Quran. The people of Nuh were the first people to invent idolatry. Five names. And Ibn Abbas mentions the story. And this is, you can imagine, this is at a time when there's only one village on earth. There's only one civilization. And these five people, complicated names, but these are the original men. Wad, Suwa, Yaghuth, Ya'uq, and Nasr. These five people were righteous men. Good people. And when they died, the people built images, statues, icons of them to remind them of their piety. And slowly but surely, as generations kept on going, instead of just looking at the statue to be reminded of the piety, they began worshipping the statue. It's a stepping stone as shaitan used it. So, it is said that shaitan inspired Amr ibn Luhay to resurrect these five idols. And subhanAllah, in, in ways we have to explain that these five idols were in fact worshipped in Arabia when the Prophet came. Even though they had not been worshipped for millennia. And yet when the Prophet came, there was one tribe that had Wad, one tribe that had Suwa, one tribe that had Yaghuth, that had Nasr, all of these were there. How were these names resurrected? Some books of history say it was this man, Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'i. And he put one stone in front of the Kaaba, and this is the Hubal. And then from this, people began proliferating idols. How so? Well, the first thing that they did is that they began worshipping, this is really interesting, they began worshipping the stones that the Kaaba was built with. How so? We learn from the traditions that whenever a caravan left Mecca, they would chip away and take a rock from the Kaaba. And they would take this rock as being equivalent to an idol. And wherever they went, they would then put the rock there and then worship this stone. What was the stone? The building blocks of the Kaaba. Now, we as Muslims, this is something a lot of people don't think about, we don't consider the bricks of the Kaaba to be sacred and holy. The bricks of the Kaaba are just clay and sand. It is the location that is holy. It's not the marble of the floor. It's not the, the silk covering of the Kaaba. It's not the bricks that the Kaaba is used to build with. It is the place that Allah created. And the Kaaba, a lot of people don't know this, is rebuilt every few decades. It's just like any structure. How long does a building last? You know the last reconstruction of the Kaaba? Who can guess when it happened? The current Kaaba that we see now, who knows when, does, when was this Kaaba built? The people who live and visit frequently know around 10 years ago. The current Kaaba is literally only 10 years old, that's it. There is nothing holy about the Kaaba. It is the area, it is the land of Mecca that is sacred. The Kaaba comes and goes and after another 50 years, it's going to grow weak, the foundations are going to be crumbling, they're going to have to rebuild it. But the people of the, of the Mecca at the time, they didn't realize this. They, did, they let paganism seep in. So they would take bricks of the Kaaba and then they would... Worship those bricks. And of course, this is the stepping stone to idolatry. Another Sahabi who accepted Islam, Abu Raja al-Utaridi. Abu Raja al-Utaridi mentions that before Islam came, 
We used to worship rocks and stones. Hadith is in Sahih Muslim. We used to worship rocks and stones. And if we found a rock that looked more beautiful than the rock we were worshipping, we would throw that rock away and put the other rock in its place. And if we were traveling in the desert and we couldn't find a rock, listen to this, we would gather some sand, put it into a pile, bring a goat, squeeze some milk out of it to make the sand firm, and then do tawaf around that sand. Now, wallahi, it is mind-boggling to think intelligent people will do this, but if you go to some countries on earth, I'm not going to mention anything here because people might get offended, but if you go to some places on earth, wallahi, every street corner, you go to the middle of the, the, the jungles, and you will find people have built a... A, 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 a mausoleum or a structure or a, a pagan temple and you, and you look and you see there's a rock with red painting or yellow painting on it. Just a rock. And you find people putting meat in front of the rock and putting butter and putting you know, sweets in front of the rock. And it's mind-boggling that to this day people can act like this. That they're going to give their acts of worship, they're going to prostrate, they're going to lower their heads to a wood or a rock or a stone. And when you read this, you wonder, subhanAllah, but then you see it with your own two eyes and you see, no, this is still here. And then we talk about those who do this in our own religion, in our own culture. There are some Muslims who do the same with graves, with saints, with mausoleums. The same thing. You see it in many Muslim countries. You go and you find Muslims literally bowing, bowing their head down in front of the grave of a saint, of a wali, of a peer, doing tawaf around the grave. And you wonder, where is La ilaha illallah? This is exactly what the Jahili Arabs did. One of the most disgusting stories, to be honest, is that of Naila and Asaf. Naila and Asaf. Naila and Asaf were two idols. Naila was put on Safa, and Asaf was put on Marwa. And so the Quraysh, when they did Tawaf, they would touch Naila and Asaf when they're going back and forth. When Islam came, the Muslims felt hesitant. How can we do Sa'i when it's meant to commemorate Naila and Asaf? So Allah revealed in the Quran the verses that we all know Inna Safa wal Marwata min Sha'airillah. Safa and Marwa are holy before Naila and Asaf were put there. Safa and Marwa are from the signs of Allah. Before Naila and Asaf ever came. Safa and Marwa are from the signs of Allah. So whoever does Hajj, then let him, there is no sin on you if you do Tawaf, i.e. Sa'i, between them. There's no sin meaning don't feel guilty. There's no evil in Safa and Marwa. What is Naila and Asaf? Aisha says that since we were children, we were hearing the story of Naila and Asaf, the legends that they have. Naila and Asaf, May Allah forgive us for, for even narrating such disgusting things, but this is what the books of history say. They were two lovers, male and female. Na'il and Asaf, the Asaf is the male and Na'il is the female. They were two lovers. And they could not find a place to be intimate because they were not married. Except the interior of the Kaaba. So they consummated their romance inside the Kaaba. And as a punishment, Allah destroyed them and solidified and petrified them right then and there. Now when the Quraysh came across them, they actually took them as a miracle. And they put these two on Safa and Marwa. 
And that is why the Muslims said, how can we do Sa'i between Safa and Marwa? So Allah said, look, Safa and Marwa have nothing to do with Na'ila and Asaf. So this is the story of Na'ila and Asaf. Again, it shows you the paganism that the Jahili Arabs were upon. And we also know that when the Prophet conquered Mecca, there were around 360 idols around the Kaaba. 360 idols of various shapes and sizes. Some idols were in the shape of full humans. Some were in the shape of animals. Most of them were in the shape of half human, half animal. And you know, to this day, the children's fairy tales, half horse and half you know, human and half lion, and just like the Sphinx of Egypt or you know, the, the centaurs, this type of, of theology. We read in the books of history that most of these uh, idols were humanoid. A little bit of human, a little bit of animal. And they would then put these, uh, these statues around the Kaaba. Also, we learn that the Quraysh had the theology that Allah has daughters. And that these daughters are his angels. And they would worship the angels. They would worship the angels thinking that these are the daughters of Allah. So they would consider the angels to be the daughters of Allah. Now the Arabs did not have a specified theology. They didn't have a creed. You know, we as Muslims, we have a creed. We believe in Allah and the angels, the day of judgment, Qadr. We have a creed. We need to understand that Societies that are idolatrous, paganistic societies, they don't have creeds. For example, Hindus are the, are the uh, most clear example of, of an idolatrous uh, religion. Hindus don't have creeds. If you ask 10 different Hindus what their religion is, you'll get 10 different answers. right? Because there is no unified creed. There's no aqidah as we call it. And one Hindu can worship one god, another can worship another god, and you can have six million Hindus worshipping six million gods, different. And each one has a different perception of what his god can or cannot do. This is all legit in their religion because there's no unified creed. The same goes for the Arabs, that there was no unified creed. Many of them believed in a day of judgment, many of them denied it. Many of them believed this, many of them didn't. There's no unified creed. But the one thing that they all agreed upon is that we need to worship these idols to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They have some form of idolatry. Does this mean that the entire society was idolatrous? No. History records that there were some exceptions to this rule. And it is very interesting to look at these exceptions and to derive some benefit and wisdom from this. And the books of Sirah mentioned that there were a handful of people called Hanif. Hunafa, plural Hunafa, singular Hanif. And Hanif means, Hanif means turning away from. So the Hanif or Hunafa are turning away from shirk and turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what Hanif means. That they're turning away from shirk and they're turning to Allah. We'll mention some of the stories of the Hunafa. One of the most interesting Hunafa, which we only have literally four or five paragraphs of knowledge about, is Qus ibn Sa'idah. Qus ibn Sa'idah. Qus ibn Sa'idah was not from the Quraysh. He was from the Banu Iyad, a tribe that was far away, in modern day around Oman and Bahrain, that area. And Qus ibn Sa'idah, was probably around 80, 90, of course the books generally exaggerate, they say 100, 150, some even say 300, but yani, we can imagine he was an old man when the Prophet ﷺ saw him as a young man. 
So the Prophet met Qus ibn Sa'idah when he was in his 20s. And Qus ibn Sa'idah would come to Mecca for the Hajj. Remember, the Hajj is a universal, uh, it's a universal right. People from all over Arabia are coming. So Qus ibn Sa'idah came from the Banu Iyad and he was preaching against idolatry. And it is mentioned that he was one of the most eloquent of the poets. And his poetry or his rajiz, which is not quite poetry, it's a manner of speaking. Um, some people have said it, it is the most resembling of the language of the Qur'an. And this shows us that he was upon the fitrah and the closest to the religion of Islam. So for example, he has, and I quote some Arabic here, Ya ayyuhan nas, isma'u wa'u, u means to understand, isma'u wa'u. وَإِذَا سَمِعْتُمْ فَانْتَفِعُوا إِنَّ مَنْ عَاشَ مَاتْ وَمَنْ مَاتَ فَاتْ وَكُلُّ مَا هُوَ آتٍ آتْ And it goes on. O people, listen to me and understand. And when you hear, then benefit. Because whoever lives of a surety will die. And whoever dies has finished. There's nothing more for him to do. And everything that Allah has decreed will indeed come about. And he has, يَا مَعْشَرَ إِيَادِ Iyad is his tribe. يَا مَعْشَرَ إِيَادِ أَيْنَ ثَمُودُ وَعَادِ وَأَيْنَ الْآبَاءُ وَالْأَجْدَادِ وَأَيْنَ الْمَعْرُوفُ الَّذِي لَمْ يُشْكَرْ وَالظُلْمَ الَّذِي لَمْ يُنْكَرْ أَقْسَمَ قُصْ بِاللَّهِ إِنَّ لِلَّهِ لَدِينًا أَرْضَى مِنْ دِينِكُمْ هَذَا O people of Iyad, where is Thamud? Where is Aad? Where are your fathers and where are your grandfathers? And who will reward the one who does good but he was never rewarded? And who will punish the one who does injustice but he was never punished? In other words, do you think this is it? Do you think there's no hereafter? Who's gonna reward the one who does good but he was never thanked? And who's gonna punish the one who does evil but he was never punished? He's referring to sing the Day of Judgment. I swear by Allah that there must be a religion better than the religion you are upon. He doesn't know it because there's no prophecy. He doesn't know it because the Prophet has not yet been sent. And it is said many, many years later in the ninth year of the Hijrah. This is 50 or 40 years after the Prophet first met Qus. That when the Banu Iyad came to accept Islam, the Prophet said, Where is Qus ibn Iyad? Who amongst you knows him? So they said, he died a long time ago, four decades or something ago. So the Prophet said, I remember him on a camel, a red camel, and I remember that he had mesmerizing uh, speech. Can anybody amongst you remind me of it? So they reminded him of that speech, and this is some of what I narrated to you right now. So they reminded him of what Qus said, and the Prophet ﷺ liked what Qus had said. And this shows that there was some remnants of Tawheed. The most important Hunafa were four. Qus is one of them, but the, four, the, more, the most important were four. And we have a number of details about them. Ibn Hisham narrates a very beautiful story. He says that before the coming of the Prophet ﷺ, the Quraysh held a huge festival outside of Mecca. And they invited the entire city to celebrate with their idols. And they exalted their idols, they sacrificed, they did tawaf around their idols. When the entire village or the entire city of Mecca left, four people found themselves remaining behind. And they realized when they found themselves remaining behind that they are all upon the same wavelength. They're too embarrassed to tell people about this. So they didn't want to go. When they let the whole society leave, the city's empty for a few days. Lo and behold, they thought they're going to be alone. Four people were there. So when the four people realized that we're all in the same wavelength here, they said, let us befriend one another. And let us not tell our people about 
our affair, that we disagree with this idolatry. These four people were number one. Waraqa ibn Nawfal ibn Asad. Who is Waraqa ibn Nawfal ibn Asad? Well, if we mention one more person, Khadija binti Khuwaylid ibn Asad. Khadija binti Khuwaylid ibn Asad, Waraqa ibn Nawfal ibn Asad. So Waraqa and Khadija are cousins. Waraqa and Khadija are cousins. But Waraqa was around 50 or 40 years older because his father was the eldest and Khadija's father was the youngest of the brothers. So he is around 40 years older than Khadija. So number one, Waraqa ibn Nawfal. Number two, Ubaidillah ibn Jahsh. Ubaidillah ibn Jahsh is the Prophet's cousin through his mother. So the Prophet's aunt is Ubaidillah ibn Jahsh's mother. Aunt meaning Abdul Muttalib's daughter. So Abdul Muttalib's daughter, the Prophet's aunt, is Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh's mother. So he's the Prophet's cousin. Number two, Uthman ibn al-Huwaydith. And number three, Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl. And he is the cousin of Umar ibn al-Khattab ibn Nufayl. Umar ibn al-Khattab and Zayd ibn Amr. Amr and, uh, and uh, al-Khattab are brothers. So Umar is the first cousin of Zayd ibn Amr, but once again, Zayd is like 40, 50 years older than Umar. So these are the four. Once again, Waraqa ibn Nawfal, Ubaidillah ibn Jahsh, Uthman ibn al-Huwaylith, and Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl. So these four said, let us befriend one another and not tell anybody about our affair. We all know that our people are upon misguidance, that they had left the pure religion of Ibrahim. Are we going to do tawaf around the stone? Are we going to sacrifice to a stone that can neither benefit us nor harm us? Let us search for the original religion of Ibrahim salam. Let us search for the Hanifiyyah. And that's why Allah calls Ibrahim Hanif throughout the Quran. Allah says that Millat Ibrahima Hanifa. In over eight verses, Allah calls Ibrahim Hanif. And the Arabs knew that Ibrahim was Hanif. And therefore, these people are saying, let's search for the Hanifiyyah of Ibrahim. So they all split up and they all left Mecca for a while, searching for the truth. As for Waraqa ibn Nawfal, he eventually chose Christianity. And he studied its books and he learned Hebrew and Aramaic. And he rejected the religion of the people of the Quraysh, and he was a convert to Christianity. Waraqa, of course, we know his story, that he was an old blind man in his 80s, when the Prophet at the age of 40, heard, Iqra' bismi rabbik khalaq. And everybody knew that this was a learned scholar. He's an eccentric academic for the Meccan standards. He reads and writes, he's a genius. If you can read and write in Mecca, you're a, you're a tenured professor, you're a, you're a big shot there, okay? He reads and writes, and he speaks Hebrew and Aramaic. So when Iqra came down, Khadija held on to the hand of the Prophet and said, let's go to Waraqa, because he knows what's going on here. He knows this stuff, where this is not a part of our civilization, we've never seen this before. Let's go to Waraqa. And so Waraqa was the one who recognized, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. And subhanAllah, it's very interesting, if you ask the average Muslim who's the first convert, they say Abu Bakr. People jump over, no, the first convert is Waraqa. After Khadija, we can say the first male convert is Waraqa, before Abu Bakr. Because even before the da'wah began, even before the Prophet realized he's a prophet, Waraqa understood what's going on. Because the Prophet did not understand, what did I see? What was this entity that came to me? And so Waraqa said, this is the same entity who came to Musa, 
who came to Jesus. This is Jibreel. This is the Namus, he called him. So it's the, the secret companion. He's the one whom Allah sends to the prophets. And Waraka was the one who said to him, how I wish I were a young man. I've been searching my whole life for the truth. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? He must have spent 60, 70 years waiting for the truth. And now when he's just about to die, he hears the Prophet So he regrets. He said, how I wish I were a young man now so that I could support you when your people persecute you and expel you. And this was the first shock to the Prophet My people will expel me? My people are going to oppose me? And because Waraka at this time knew the history of the previous nations, he said, yes, never has any Prophet come with the truth except that his own people opposed him. So this is Waraka ibn Nawfal and Khadija says, فَمَا لَبِثَ Just a little while after this conversation, he passed away. The first Muslim who died in Mecca was Waraka ibn Nawfal. Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh has the saddest story. Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh converted to Christianity and he was the cousin of the Prophet So when the Prophet began preaching, he accepted Islam. And he married Umm Salama. And they then migrated to Abyssinia. So he was a Muslim. But he became a Murtad when he reached Abyssinia. And he reverted back to Christianity. And that was when, of course, Umm Salama had to leave him. And he died shortly after that. And then the Prophet ﷺ proposed and Umm Salama became his wife. And uh, there's a whole story there about Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh which we don't have time for. But one simple benefit that we can derive from this and it's a very important benefit. If you become murtad in a land that is not ruled by the Sharia, this is your freedom. Doesn't, you cannot do anything. So the whole question, I'm saying this now because our religion is being attacked. You guys have a blasphemy law. If somebody leaves a religion, you have to cut his head off. That's what we're told. The response is very simple. No. Our Sharia tells us that in lands that are not ruled by Islam, Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh converted back to Christianity. Nobody harmed a hair on his head. There's, this is the land of Negus, the land of Najashi. Do as you please. It's not uh, the land where the Sharia is going to be implemented. So in lands uh, other than the land of Islam, there's no question the Sharia would say that we don't implement uh, that. And of course, whether we uh, implement or not, even in Islamic lands, there's a whole long conditions for that. This is the second person, Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh. The third, Uthman ibn al-Huwaydith. Uthman ibn al-Huwaydith, he too accepted Christianity. So out of these four, three accepted Christianity. Waraka eventually accepted Islam. Ubaidullah accepted Islam, then went back to Christianity. Uthman remained a Christian till he died. And we don't know whether he ever heard the Prophet's message. Because Uthman ibn al-Huwaydith left Mecca never to return. He left Mecca. Now when did this incident take place? Probably, probably before the birth of the Prophet Or if it took place... Uh, when he was alive, he would have been a little child. Because, you do the math, Waraka is in his 80s when the Prophet is 40. So, when did this took place? Maybe when Waraka was in his 20s. So, the Prophet, most likely, again, this is all assumptions, most likely, this scattering took place before the Prophet was even born. Now, Uthman ibn al-Huwaydith traveled to Rome, and he eventually made his way up into Caesar's palace and it is said he became an interpreter because they needed Arab interpreters so he accepted Christianity and so he was given a lot of money, a lot of prestige and he became a Christian and he died a Christian.
So these are the three out of the four. The last one, Zayd ibn Amr ibn Dufayl, has the most interesting story, and the Prophet had a number of encounters with him. Zayd ibn Amr ibn Dufayl did not accept Christianity or Judaism because he was not impressed with either of them. And it is narrated that he told both the Jewish rabbis and the Christian priests that he met that this is not the religion of Ibrahim and you know it. This is not the religion of Ibrahim and you know it. So Zayd ibn Amr returned back to Mecca and he told the people, once he had now become mature and respected, O people of Quraysh, there is no one left upon the religion of Ibrahim in this whole city other than me. All of you have rejected the religion of Ibrahim. And Asma binti Abi Bakr, the older sister of Aisha, Asma is around 20 years older than Aisha, she's way older than Aisha. Asma binti Abi Bakr, Aisha, remember she was a very young girl. So Asma binti Abi Bakr says that she remembers as a young child seeing Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl rebuking the Quraysh for worshipping idols, for giving meat to the idols, for trying to bury their daughters alive. And in fact, and subhanAllah, how beautiful is this? When any Qurashi wanted to kill his daughter, Zayd would say, give her over to me, I will take care of her and I will bring her up. She will become my daughter. So he would adopt all of the daughters that the Quraysh wanted to kill. And this shows us his generosity and his kind heart. And he forbade any daughter to be killed and said, give them to me and I will raise them in my household. And he refused to participate in any of their idolatry. It is authentically mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ met Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl when he was a young man, when the Prophet was a young man, before the prophecy began. And he asked him, what is Masha'nuk? What is the matter between you and your people? Why are is there uh, why is there this animosity? So Subhanallah, this shows us the process. And even as a young man, he wants to study. He wants to know his inquisitive mind. Probably as a teenager, we don't have an age here. We can imagine maybe 17, 18. The Prophet is asking Zayd as this young child, what is the matter? What do you believe? What do they believe? And so uh, Zayd ibn Amr would explain to him that I cannot worship idols. I cannot do what these people are doing. And uh, the Prophet found a kindred spirit because as we know, the Prophet himself never worshipped an idol. He never bowed his head in front of an idol. He never sacrificed meat to an idol. All of these things he himself did not do. So, Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl, uh, as we said, he continued upon this religion and he died five years before the Prophet began preaching Tawheed. Five years. His son, Sa'id ibn Zayd is one of the companions that unfortunately we don't, we as Muslims don't know much about even though we should because Sa'id ibn Zayd is one of the ten who were promised Jannah. This is one of the big names but unfortunately we don't know much about him, meaning we, meaning this society, not that we don't know from the books. Sa'id ibn Zayd was one of the ten who are Ashara Mubashara. This is his son. So one day he said, O Messenger of Allah, you know my father, you remember my father. And you remember what he was upon. What will be his fate in the Akhirah? You can tell him, mean, he's loving, he's, he wants to know, Ya Rasulullah, what's going to be the fate of my father in the Akhirah? So the Prophet ﷺ said, he will be resurrected on the day of judgment, his own ummah. He is a one-man ummah, without any prophet. Because he was such a pious person. And when he went back from Isra wal Mi'raj, you know the famous journey, we're going to talk about that. He said to Sa'id ibn Zayd, I, I entered Jannah and I saw your father. Allah had blessed him with not one but two gardens. 
So this shows us that even before the coming of Islam, people managed to enter Jannah because they rejected idolatry. Because their fitrah, their innate nature told them that something is wrong. So Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl is a one-man ummah. This is a trivia question. Which ummah is there without any prophet? And we say the ummah of Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl. Okay? This is an ummah which is a one-man ummah without any prophet. Now this shows us the status of the Arabs. How about the status outside of Arabia? We've already mentioned that the Roman Empire was upon Christianity. And the, uh, the, the Sassanid Empire or the Persian Empire was upon Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrians, of course, they have the concept of the god of fire and the god of, of uh, 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 darkness, Ahura Mazda and Ahriman. So they have a perpetual fire that is lit and they worship that. So the Zoroastrians are, from the Islamic perspective, a type of uh, uh, idolatry, a type of paganism. How about the Christianity of Rome? Well, again, to make a long story short, this is a whole interesting thing in and of itself. After Allah raised the Prophet Isa we can say that there were, within 30-40 years, there were three major strands of Christianity. Three major understandings of Christianity. The first type is called Gnosticism, which we're not going to talk about. It's a completely uh, uh, philosophized understanding. Gnosticism. It's a very mystical understanding. And they pretty much eliminated. There's really no Gnostic Christians anymore. The two major groups of Christians, the first of them are called Jewish Christians. This is the name that academics give. Jewish Christians. And the second, some people call them Pauline Christians, falling following Paul, right? So there were Jewish Christians and there were Pauline Christians. Jewish Christians, they believed, amongst other things, that they are Jews. That they have to follow the law of Musa. That they have a sharia, kosher and kashrut and all of these laws. That they have to be circumcised and eat the biha or, or kosher meat and basically be practicing Jews. And that Jesus Christ was sent to the Jews. And that he was the promised Messiah. I.e. this is exactly what we believe. It's exactly what we believe. Right? Now, Paul, who was never an actual disciple, he claimed to be a disciple. He claimed to see Jesus Christ uh, in his vision. Paul was the one who began a whole new theology. What is this theology? Jesus Christ has elements of divinity. He's not just a man. He's a super man, some type of divinity. Jesus Christ came to destroy the law or to obliterate the law. Or not destroy, it's not a good word, they wouldn't agree with that. Jesus Christ came to make the law unfunctional. Jesus, he came to replace the law. If you believe in Jesus Christ, there is no sharia. And there, the, the, the whole question of, of circumcision is discussed in the New Testament. So he said, you don't have to circumcise. You don't have to do the sharia anymore. And then he began some elements of the Trinity. He began this and that. So this is called Pauline Christianity. For 300 years, Christians debated over what is the meaning of Christianity. What is Jesus Christ? Is he a prophet? Is he a God? Is he the son of God? What are the Bible? What is this and that? Until finally, and the Romans... Initially, you know, the Romans were a pagan religion, right? They had the god Jupiter and they had this. The Romans were the worst enemies of the Christians. And there are these stories that they would find Christians and throw them to the lion pits. And they would, you know, uh, the, the emperor Nero burnt Christians alive. He, 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 he made the whole city of Rome burning 
a light by Christian bodies. He would light a Christian for the light bulb of the city. So he was, they were, these were evil people and Christians were martyrs and they were persecuted. So for two, three hundred years, Christians were martyrs until a miracle happened. They were probably around 3-4% Christians of the Roman Empire until a miracle happened from their perspective and that is the emperor converted to Christianity. Now the equivalent would be in our times if the president of the United States converted to Islam because we are around 5-6% and Christians were around 5 Well, some say he's already a Muslim, but we're not getting into that theory, okay? <laughs> Mr. Hussein Sahab, we're not going to talk about him. But the equivalent would literally be you're a minority religion you're a 5% religion, and then the emperor converts to your religion. This is what happened with Christianity, right? Constantine was the first convert of the Roman Empire to Christianity, the first emperor, sorry, to convert to Christianity. Now, Constantine isn't just some Joe on the street, he's the emperor. So he's not going to have these bickerings going on, so he convenes a whole council. All you Christians who are fighting, come, let's, let's, have, a, let's have a dialogue. And let's figure out what Christianity is. And then he wanted a certain version of Christianity. We're just zooming this quickly through because he's a pagan from before. So he wants a little bit of a paganistic uh, element of Christianity. And so from that we get the 25th of December. We get the concept of halos. We get the concept of, of a trinity. We get this. We get the son of God because they had a son of God in Mithraia. All of this is, you know, we, all of this comes from, from Constantine's uh, uh, decision in 325 in the city of Nicaea, which is now in Turkey. He held a council called the Council of Nicaea. In 325 CE, Constantine decrees official Christianity is basically Pauline Christianity. All other Christians, we're going to do to you what our ancestors did to the other Christians. We're going to burn you, persecute you, kill you. So there was a massive outflux, an immigration, a hijrah of original Christians to other lands. Right? And this is why it is said that some of them came to the Najashi's kingdom and so the Najashi's kingdom had more Jewish Christians than others. Others went to Iran and so Salman al-Farsi, so we're going to come to is there. But the Roman Empire officially banished Jewish Christianity. And there was no such thing as Jewish Christianity officially in the Roman Empire. So Pauline Christianity then became the standard from Pauline. We got the Orthodox, the Catholic, the Protestant, and that's basically 99.9% .9 of Christians. The original others are all completely gone. Now, this is in 325. The process is born 570, 250 years before. So we have remnants, little bit of references that some of the original Christianity was saved. And the most interesting story we have is that of Salman al-Farisi. Salman al-Farisi, his story is a very long story, it's narrated in Muslim Imam Ahmed and it is authentic. We'll summarize it and I want all of you to read his story in the books of Sirah in more detail. Because it's simple, it's, 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 you don't need, uh, you know, you can understand it as it is. I'll summarize the main points. Salman al-Farisi was the son of the priest in Iran, in uh, Persia. And his father was the one who kept the fire. Zoroastrians, they have to keep the fire lit 24-7. It's not allowed for the fire to be turned off. And even when they build a new temple, they have to import an ever-lit fire. They cannot just light a match and put it there, no. They have to take the fire because they believe it's eternal. They, have, they believe it's an eternal fire. So any new temple that they build, they have to take a fire from another temple that's already been burning, 
and then they bring it to the new temple. So I asked one of them, what did you do in America when you built your first temple? I mean, where did you get the fire from? They said, we got a special plane. We commissioned a fire to be brought from one of our temples in the plane. Because we're not allowed to just light a match and put the... I'm going to my tangents. Let me stop here, get back to the story. Okay, Salman al-Farsi. Salman al-Farsi, what was his story? Salman al-Farsi was the son of the fire keeper. So his father taught him how to keep the fire going and whatnot. So he would go and take care of the fire and come back home. That's his job. That's the, they are priests of the fire. They're priests of the Zoroastrian or the Majus as we call them. And they're called in Urdu Parsis because when Islam came and conquered them, they ran away to India and because they were from Persia, they were called Parsis. So Parsi means from Persia. But anyway, I again digress. Let me get back here. So Saman al-Farsi would go to the, the, the fire and keep on lighting it up. He said, and he's narrating the story himself, he said on the way there, on the road there, there was a monk who had his small monastery. You know the monks had a little cave, they have a monastery. And he would be worshipping, singing his hymns, praying all day and all night. And it intrigued me that this person has a different religion. And I'd pass by every day and I'd listen to his hymns. I'd listen to his chantings. So, and it was mesmerizing. And it attracted me. So one day I had the guts, the guts to basically go and ask him, can you tell me about your religion? And so, the monk began to preach Christianity to Salman al-Farisi. And slowly but surely, Salman al-Farisi realized that what he's doing is idolatry. And what the monk has is a version of Tawheed and worship Allah and whatnot. So he became attracted to Christianity and he secretly converted. He secretly converted. When his father found out, his father locked him up with chains, pre prevented him from leaving the house, tortured him because he's the priest. How can your own son convert to... So it's a big matter of shame. And attempted to exterminate him. So Salman al-Farsi managed to escape from his own house and run away to Syria, which is the land of Christianity. And the monk had already told, the monk had been executed because he converted the son of the priest, so they killed the monk. But the monk had told him that, go to such and such a monastery, and you will find people of my thought, my inclination. Don't go to any other monastery. So we know that this monk was not upon Pauline Christianity. Because he's telling him, don't go to the capital, don't go to Rome, go to this particular you know, monastery, I'll tell you which one, this is where I come from, and you go there. So Salman al-Farsi went there, and then to make a long story short, every time he went, he became the disciple, the main disciple of the monk, and the monk taught him how to worship, he, he remained a Christian. When each one died, he would tell him to go to another one, and this happened four times. When each one died, he would say, okay, now you go to this guy. So he went to that guy, and he went to When he came to the fourth one, you can imagine he's probably around 70, 80 years old now. Salman al-Farisi has these legends that he lived for 300 years. Once again, we understand there's a little bit of legends. Maybe he lived up till 100, 115. Something. He was the longest, the oldest of the Sahaba in Medina. And um, he was a very old man when he accepted Islam. So when the fourth one, when the fourth one is about to die, listen to what he says. He says, But my companions who sent you eventually all over to me, my group of people, I don't know anybody remaining upon that understanding of Christianity. We're all gone now. This was the group that we had, but I don't know anybody left upon our understanding of Christianity. But you have come to a time when the promised one is about to come. 
We, we know this now. This is a version of Christianity which is not Pauline. So they have knowledge that is not found in the New Testament. Because one thing Constantine did, and this is really sad, but it, it destroyed uh, Christian history. He chose the four books that are not a part of the New Testament. And he burnt all the other books that opposed his theology. All the Jewish Christian books, you know the books of the Bible that we have, right? There's the four famous books. Constantine chose them. Because they affirmed his belief. And all the other works and writings were burnt in front of his presence. So we don't have references in magic. And that's why, again, let me just tell you, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, some of these people were actually Jewish Christians. And that's why it was such a big find. That some groups, were they were hiding in the caves of Qumran in, in, uh, in Jordan. The Dead Sea Scrolls, you've heard of them maybe. When they were discovered, these were some remnants of Messianic Jews, which people thought were never there. And they were living pre-Jesus Christ. So they still have, they're waiting for Jesus Christ to come. So they have some knowledge. And some of them, it is said they accept it. So again, all of that is theory now where people are deciphering it through. Point being, we don't have access to what beliefs they had. But Salman al-Farsi tells us in an authentic hadith that they told him three things. What did they tell him? They said, you're just about to come to the time when the man that Jesus Christ predicted is about to come. We know it, the signs have been met. What are these signs? We don't know. But these people knew. So they're telling Salman, the signs have all come. And his time is just around the corner. So he told Salman, my advice to you is you go seek this man out. Go seek this prophet out. How? Where am I going to go? I will tell you three signs. I will tell you three signs. Number one, he shall appear in a land that is full of dates. First sign. Go to the land that is known for dates. Number two, he will have a physical mark on his back. In Arabic we call khatim, and, and, uh, you know, the, the khatim or the seal of the prophecy. I'll talk about this inshallah later on. But it's a physical uh, mound of hair, they say. And some say it's even a little bit of a protrusion of the skin, the size of a pigeon's egg, this small, very small, even smaller than this, right? It's a physical protrusion with, with beautiful colored hair, multicolored hair, uh, we've, it's been described. Not just black, multicolored hair coming from between the shoulder blades of the Prophet ﷺ. It's a physical seal on his back. This is the second sign. Number three, he said that this man will accept gifts but he's never going to accept charity. He will accept gifts, but he will never accept charity. To this day in our fiqh, you cannot give charity to Al-Muhammad. You cannot give charity to the descendants of the Prophet To this day, it's not allowed. So, Salman asked his sheikh died, his teacher died. This is the fourth sheikh now from his side. So we can imagine, you know, he's already probably around 50 years old at this time. So he asks, what is the land that is the most well known for producing dates? He asks in Syria. He is told... The land of? There is no Saudi Arabia at that time. Saudi Arabia is 1931. Khaybar. Khaybar, which is close to Yathrib. So, he asks around, who amongst you is going to Khaybar? How can I go to Khaybar? So he is told, there are Arab caravans that trade in Damascus here. Get one of the caravans and go to Khaybar. Now, Salman is a monk. He's a priest. He has no money. He has no prestige. He has no clan. He has no society. And so he says to a group of Arab traders, are you going to Khaybar? They said, yes, we're going to Khaybar. Come with us. When they came, when he joined their caravan, they kidnapped him, meaning they, they took him as a slave. 
Because he has, again, this is a lawless society. There is no 911 you can call, there is no government. And Salman, and Salman is not a member of Rome, he's not a member of Persia anymore, he's in exile. He doesn't have people who can come and fight for him. This is a lawless society. So Salman is taken as a slave. And instead of ending up in Khaybar, he is sold to a group of Yahud who happen to live in Yathrib, which is later to be called Medina. Because he had that sincerity. And so for decades he toiled in Medina. As a slave, as a 70 year old man, subhanAllah. As a slave, he's toiling in Medina. And rumors began to spread of a man claiming to be a prophet. And rumors began to spread that he's immigrating to Medina. And the Yahud began to be worried in trepidation because they thought this is the king of the Arabs who's coming. And when the king of the Arabs come, then we're in trouble. And Salman, he tells us a story that he was collecting dates from the top of the tree. And he heard his master speak with his brother, the master and his brother, that the king of the Arabs has arrived. This is the first hijrah, the first day of the hijrah. The king of the Arabs has arrived. This he's been waiting for for the last 20 years. He literally jumps down and he runs to his master and says, what happened? Did he come? Did he come? And the master slaps him across the head and says, go back to your work. What are you worried about? You're a slave. Get back to your work. So, Salman goes back, finishes what he's doing. When he finishes the chores that are assigned to him, he takes some of his dates, which was his own food. And he comes to the Prophet This is on the second, third day that he's in Medina. And he says, that I heard that you're a stranger in this town. Here is some charity for you. Puts it in front. So, the Prophet tells the Sahaba, Kulu, eat. But he doesn't eat anything. The second day after his chores are over, he brings another plate and he says, Today I have come with you with some dates and this is a gift to you. So the Prophet tells the Sahaba, Kulu, but he eats as well. So Salman, now his heart is racing. This is a land of dates. He's, you know, one sign has been met. Now what do I do to get to the third sign? So he stands up and he goes behind the process and trying to take a peek if he can look into his shirt to see what he can do. And when this old man goes behind the Prophet and starts peering and peeking, the Prophet understood. So he unbuttoned his shirt and he lowered it. He lowered it behind his back to literally show him the, the, the pigeon mark, the, 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 the khatim. And when Salman saw this, he began crying and he began wailing and screaming. He came and he kissed the hands and the feet of the Prophet and he told him his whole story. And the Prophet said, we must help you for your freedom. And the, the, the people put an, a ridiculous price on him. When they knew the Prophet wanted him, they said, you must give us, I forgot now, is it 150 uh, uh, um, dates, 150 date trees. Date trees. Salman says, where can I get 150 date trees from? So the Prophet said, next time it's the season to plant the seeds, call me. So the Prophet came with his own hands. He planted 100, 150 of those, those trees. And within a year there was full trees. So he said, here's your, here's your ransom. Salman, you're free. And Salman became a free uh, Muslim by, because the Prophet paid for his ransom through that barakah. Now, the point being here, that Salman's story indicates what? How few real Christians were left. Very few real Christians were left. And we only have time for one more and then we'll have to conclude. One more story that shows that there were only a few Christians left. 
is a story that is mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari, and that is the story of the Emperor Heraclius. The Emperor Heraclius. The Emperor Heraclius was the emperor at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and. Unlike most politicians in the world, he was an intelligent and educated man. And he was a scholar. And he was trained in Christianity. And when the Prophet wrote a letter to the emperors in the 8th and 9th year of the Hijrah, he wrote letters to the emperors, he wrote one to Heraclius. Or to be more precise, he wrote one to the governor of Bahrain, who was uh, the governor of Heraclius. And so it reached uh, Heraclius. And Heraclius at that time was visiting Elia, which is Jerusalem. He was visiting Jerusalem. And so it was not supposed to get to him that fast. It was supposed to go to the governor, but he was in Jerusalem at the time. So when he read the letter, and the letter says that this is from Muhammad Rasulullah, Emperor of Rome, Aslim Tuslim, accept Islam, you'll be safe. Aslim yu'tik Allahu ajraka marratain. Accept Islam, Allah will give you a double reward. And if you reject Islam, then you shall bear the penalty of your whole people because you are their leader. So it was a, a, a give and take, i.e. carrot and stick, I mean incentive and, and threat in the letter that you have to accept Islam and what is Islam. So the Prophet uh, Heraclius said, there's a long story in Sahih Bukhari, again inshallah maybe one day we'll talk about it in more detail. Heraclius quizzed his viziers, are there any Arabs in town? They said yes, it just so happens that the caravan from Mecca, Rihlat al-Shita'i was saif the caravan from Mecca is in Jerusalem now. Call them right now to the palace. Now, this is a trading caravan. You can imagine the Suq and the Emperor's palace, they're, they're not thinking they're going to come to the palace. Immediately the Roman guards come to the Suq and they march with the Quraysh to the palace. They're trembling. What did we do? What happened? And lo and behold, it is none other than Abu Sufyan. So Abu Sufyan gets to meet the Emperor of Rome. And Heraclius and Abu Sufyan have a long conversation which was recorded in Bukhari. Maybe, maybe inshallah we'll talk about it maybe next week or, the, or a week after that. And at the end, Heraclius, after quizzing him, tells him that if what you tell me is true, then this is the prophet that our scriptures have predicted. Pause here. There is no prediction in the current New Testament. So there must have been scriptures that are hidden from the public. And you know there's theories in the Vatican and the Gospel of Barnabas. Allah knows all of this stuff, you know. But clearly, Heraclius has access to scriptures that the rest of the Christians don't have. And of course, this makes complete sense because he's the emperor of Rome. And to this day, by the way, the Vatican Library has books that are unpublished and in, you know, secret and you know, whatnot. Uh, and, and so Heraclius says, this is the prophet that has been predicted and I knew he was coming, but it never occurred that he would be from your race. I thought he would come from the Jews. It never occurred that he would be from your race. I didn't think he'd come from the Arabs. And Heraclius wrote to his confidant, who was a bishop, one of the highest bishops, but we don't know his name, unfortunately. Russ, I wish we could look him up. We don't know his name. It just says he wrote to one of the bishops of Rome, who was on the same wavelength as him. And the bishop confirmed, yes, he meets all of the signs. Yet Heraclius did not accept Islam because he realized if he accepted Islam, then he'd have to give up being the emperor. And when you're the most powerful man on earth, then it's too tempting. And Heraclius refused to accept Islam because he could not give up being the emperor of Rome in order to submit himself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore he died upon his faith. Now we conclude by mentioning that in this dismal darkness 
our Prophet وسلم, was sent, and that is exactly what Allah says in the Quran, uh, that the Prophet says in a hadith, that أَلَا إِنَّ رَبِّي أَمَرَنِي أَنْ أُعَلِّمَكُمْ مَا جَهِلْتُمْ مِمَّا عَلَّمَنِي يَوْمِ هَذَا My Lord has commanded me to teach you that which you were ignorant of. And then he says, and before his coming, وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَى نَظَرَ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِ الْأَرْضِ فَمَقَتَهُمْ عَرَبَهُمْ وَعَجَمَهُمْ إِلَّا بَقَايَا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ The hadith is in Muslims, I'm Muslim. Allah looked at the whole world and he despised everyone. مَقَتَهُمْ is more than كَرِهَهُمْ It's the أَشَدِّ الْكَرَاهَ It's the most harshest. He despised them because of idolatry, because of jahiliyyah, because of paganism. فَمَقَتَهُمْ إِلَّا Except for بَقَايَا Some remnants of the people of the book. The teachers of Salman, right? These are the only people. إِلَّا بَقَايَا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ So the Prophet is describing how the world was. And that is why we call it Jahiliya. Utter Jahiliya. And with the coming of the Prophet there will never be another Jahiliya. And that is why Allah calls the Prophet Noor. And Allah calls him Rahmatan Lil Alameen. Because after the coming of the Prophet there is never going to be that type of Jahiliya. And this shows us that a number of benefits, and this shall we conclude. Uh, number one, the first really major benefit from all of this, and I, th I want you to understand this point because wallahi it is so essential, living in the current climate where our religion is being bombarded by foreign ideas, by alien concepts, we're being told we have to reform completely and change our tradition. Number one, guidance only comes from Allah. Not from our intellect, not from our philosophy, not from our rationalization. The world did not have a prophet or messenger for hundreds of years, from the time of Isa till the time of the Prophet. What happened? No philosopher could conceive of the truth. No theologian, no intellectual could guide mankind. Allah revealed the Quran to the Prophet and then Hidayah came. The Quran is the Hidayah. The Prophet ﷺ is the nur. The Qur'an is the shifa. Without Allah's guidance, there is no guidance. And why is this important? Because modern mankind believes that guidance is the cumulative experience of what we've done. We keep on modifying, we keep on adopting, we keep on changing. What is haram today will become halal tomorrow. What is halal today will become haram tomorrow. Our grandfathers thought this was not cool. We think it is cool. So be it, it is cool. We're progressive. We need to understand very firmly here. Our guidance is the Quran and Sunnah and that is the ultimate guidance. We're not going to change the Quran and Sunnah according to the whims of a society, according to the tastes and the culture of a generation. No, eternal truth. If mankind could not achieve guidance until Allah revealed it, then how can we? And if our Prophet Allah says in the Quran, وَوَجَدَكَ ضَالًّا فَهَدَى he could not be guided until Allah gave him the Hidayah. And Allah says in the Quran, وَمَا كُنْتَ تَدْرِي مَا الْكِتَابُ وَلَا الْإِيمَانِ You didn't know, this is addressed to the Prophet What was the book, what was Iman until we gave you the Quran? Our Rasul sitting in Ghari Hira, as we're going to come to next week, he did not know ultimate truth until Jibreel came down. Is anybody going to claim that modern philosophers are better than our Prophet That modern ethicists and, and moralists, theologians and whatnot can just sit there in a room and contemplate and then comfort with how men should live? No. 
Allah says, uh, We're the ones who are going to tell you how to live your life. The second point of benefit, we'll just mention three, you have to finish up. The second point of benefit, we really understand, subhanAllah, that most of mankind are like sheep, in that they follow whatever the leaders say. Look at the Quraysh. They knew that this is not the religion of Ibrahim. But because everybody's doing it, it's just too difficult to break away. Deep down inside, they know something is wrong. But when all of society is doing a sin and a vice, it's easy to follow. Allah says in the Quran, وَمَا أَكْثَرُ النَّاسِ وَلَوْ حَرَسْتَ بِمُؤْمِنِينَ Most of mankind, even if you want them, they're not going to be believers. And Allah says in the Quran, if you follow the majority of mankind, they will lead you astray. Majority wants to follow desires. We have to be very frank here. The majority of mankind wants to be animalistic, hedonistic. They don't want sharia, they don't want law. They just want to follow their desires. And Allah says, no, we have a law. And that law will tell you how to be a better human. And the final point that will benefit, and then inshallah we'll conclude for this week. The story of Salman tells us, and Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl tells us a beautiful fact. Whoever is sincere will be guided. If there's good and there's sincerity, it doesn't matter if you're living in Jahiliyyah. It doesn't matter if you're in a pagan society in Iran. It doesn't matter if you're surrounded by idols. If your heart is pure and you have truth and you want to know the truth, Allah will guide you to the truth. Allah took Salman al-Farsi out of the depths of Jahiliyyah in a land which was not even a Christian land. And one by one he came closer to the truth until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought him right in front of the feet of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When we show sincerity to Allah, Allah shows rahmah and guidance to us. And with this inshaAllah ta'ala we conclude for today. Unfortunately because I went so long we don't have time for Q&A. InshaAllah we'll continue next Wednesday bi'idhanillahi ta'ala. And by the way we're going to be stopping these halaqat for the month of July. Uh, but Dr. Bashar will be doing something else for that month uh, mini-series. And then Ramadan inshaAllah we have to stop uh, for this, so then we will be resuming after Ramadan. So we have another three halaqas with me of, of, of seerah, and then we'll pause for a while and then resume after Ramadan. Which is khairan wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.